Hey everyone, welcome to another edition of Anesthesia Stat, the Stanford Anesthesia Tutorial Podcast. And today I am completely honored to be joined here by the Joseph Hodap, MD, <laughs> one of the chief residents of the Stanford Anesthesia Residency Program. Thanks, Derek. You know, really, it's uh, it's my honor to be here <laughs> on the third podcast of the Anesthesia Stat series. Yeah, you're definitely a very valued guest. I've been trying to get on for so long, but, you know, as being a chief, you're very busy. So I'm glad you could make some precious time today to record with me. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. So today we're going to be talking about how to hand off a patient to a different person or provider or a different team, whether this be uh, whether this be someone who is relieving you from the OR, uh, someone who's giving you a break, maybe it's the end of the case and you're handing off the patient to the PACU nurse, or maybe it's a more complicated patient with a more involved procedure who is going to need to be transferred to the ICU after the procedure. So we're going to talk about how exactly to approach uh, handing off the patient to any number of these people or teams. So first of all, Joe, I want to hear your perspective on this. What exactly is a handoff? How would you describe what a handoff is? That's a great question, Derek. I think it's uh, an, an interesting place to start, and we can kind of piece this together uh, as we go. But in my opinion, a handoff is a summary of relevant information um, about the patient or the procedure that you want to present to the next person or team who's going to be taking care of the patient. And the goal really is to give that person or team the information they need to provide safe care for the patient in their next level of care after the surgery. Yeah, I think that is a really good summary about what a handoff is. So I think we should just jump right into it. Let's talk about the sample ambulatory case, like let's say it's someone who's an ASA class 2 or ASA class 3, and we're handing this patient off to a PACU nurse um, at the end of the case. So how would you kind of organize your thoughts? How would you approach this situation? Awesome. Yeah, so I think going into the handoff, I, I want to think about uh, factors that the patient has at play, factors from the surgery um, and then, again, like I said before, who exactly I'm handing this case off to um, so that I can sort of optimize the discussion to help them out the best. So an example of the preparation that goes into that is thinking about what is the relevant patient history. So do they have a history of high blood pressure, a history of heart disease, or respiratory disease of any kind? Um, in the PACU, Usually, diseases like sleep apnea really can come into play because they're at higher risk of uh, having respiratory complications after anesthesia. Um, I also like to keep in mind what sort of their baseline functional status is and their baseline neurological status um, because often you're dropping patients off and they're still pretty sleepy. So it's nice to be able to hand that off uh, to the nurses so they know what to expect with, as the patient wakes up. Um, along with that, it's good to keep in mind any sort of complications that happened from the anesthesia side of things or any complications that happened from the surgical side of things so that you can explain if there were sort of adverse outcomes or, or something different for this patient that might be 
unique in their post-operative care. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think a lot of what you mentioned is exactly how I think about handing off patients to the PACU as well. I completely agree. I mean, some of the points that you made about having a baseline neuro exam, again, that can be part of your pre-op evaluation as well. Oftentimes, I've dropped off patients in the PACU, and they have a facial droop, and the nurse, the first thing the nurse asks me is, did this patient already have this before the procedure? Mm-hmm. And oftentimes, the answer is yes, and it becomes something that's substantially less worrisome uh, because the patient already had it before the procedure. There's no concern that there was something that happened intraoperatively that may have caused this new facial droop. And it's nice just to give the PACU nurse kind of an idea of what happened throughout the procedure, just so they know if there's something weird that happens in the PACU that it could be uh, potentially anticipated or expected. Yeah, totally. And, you know, along those lines, I think a really good example is blood pressure management. So, you know, a lot of our patients come in and their baseline blood pressure is poorly controlled. And so they come in with a systolic of 160. Um, if they're in the pack and their systolic is 165, you don't really want to give that patient hydralazine for that. Yeah. So knowing what their pre-existing um, state was, I think is really helpful for both you and the, the recovery uh, room team. Yeah, exactly. And then following up on that, there is a specific structure, I think, after discussing all of that that I like to go through when I hand off to the PACU nurses. And at least at Stanford, the PACU nurses all have this standardized form that at least as an early CA1, and sometimes even now when I've had a really long day and it's really hard to think, I'll just take a little gander at that form (laughs) and uh, make sure I discuss everything that's important on that form that the nurses would like to know about. So at least on the form here at Stanford, the first thing that's listed is uh, airway, I believe. And even Mm -hmm. if it's not, that's something that I usually discuss first after talking about everything Joe just described. Um, Sometimes if a patient has sleep apnea uh, or at baseline has COPD or some other respiratory complication, I'll let the PACU nurse know about it already, especially if if I have to give some sort of bronchodilator or some sort of inhaler treatment or I'm, uh, I'm worried that they're going to obstruct in the PACU. I'll just give them a little heads up so they don't worry too much about it as long as it's closer to their baseline. Mm. I'll also let them know about how the airway itself was. If we intubated and it was a straightforward airway, I'll just say it was a straightforward airway. If it was a little more difficult, I'll let them know just in case. And this again, rarely happens, but there are situations where it does, where the patient would potentially need to, for whatever reason, be reintubated in the PACU. Sometimes whoever is covering the PACU, whether it's yourself between cases or the PACU resident or another attending or staff, the nurse at least has an idea um, from the handoff about how easy the airway was if they ask. So that's always nice to mention. The next thing that I'll go through is anesthetic. So this usually just uh, deals with pain or sedation meds and what kind of anesthetic that we gave them uh, in the OR. Oftentimes they'll already know, they'll be following along in the chart and so they'll know what you gave. But it's always nice to mention what kind of narcotic that you gave them, whether it be fentanyl or some other opioid or sometimes ketamine, just so the uh, nurse can anticipate what kind of complications can occur if they're either under-narcotized or over-narcotized. And then furthermore, I always mention if there was an NSAID 
and or IV acetaminophen that was given because oftentimes as part of the standard order sets for pain control, whether it be on the floor or still in the PACU, patients will get prescribed NSAIDs and acetaminophen all the time. So it is important to let them know if you gave some intra-op just so they don't redose it when it's uh, not quite time for them to redose it. And then next on the form is PONV prophylaxis. So I would say for a standard anesthetic, as long as there are no contraindications, most people do get Decadron in the beginning and Zofran. So I will mention that uh, to the nurse as long as well as if the patient has had a previous history of post-op nausea or vomiting and if I'm concerned about it. For some of the patients that do get scope patches behind the ear, I will mention that as well, just because it's so hidden that it's oftentimes easy to miss. So it'll be nice for the PACU nurse to know. This way they can remind the patient not to scratch behind their ears or touch their eyes and cause any complications from some of the anticholinergic effects of that scopolamine getting into their eyes. And then I'll uh, furthermore talk about antibiotics next, which is next on the form. Let them know what antibiotics I gave intra-op. And then towards the end, I will talk about fluids and or blood products. So I'll let them know how much fluid was given, um, if there was a Foley placed, how much urine output, and then almost sometimes just as importantly, if there wasn't a Foley placed. So they can kind of anticipate if the patient may need to urinate or is retaining something after the surgery, which is definitely possible after, especially a general anesthetic. And then I'll give them an idea of EBL, and then similarly, if there were any blood products that were transfused over the course of the procedure as well. And then the very last thing I do mention is what kind of access uh, they have. Because oftentimes, for some of the surgeries, yeah, they just have one IV, but some there are quite a few more IVs, and oftentimes a radial A-line. So it'll be nice to point to the lines and let them know, is this a peripheral, is this a radial, does it work very well? Does it not work very well? And give them a better idea of what kind of access that they have to work with. And most of the time, the primary team will mention this, but if I'm concerned about uh, potential blood loss or continuing oozing, continuing blood loss, or some sort of electrolyte abnormality, or if the patient was hyperglycemic or hypoglycemic and I needed to treat that, I will remind them to hopefully draw some labs and see where we are. Uh, just so they can follow up on it and let the either the uh, anesthesia team in the room know or the PACI resident know if something is off. Mm -hmm. So after all of that discussion, after going through all of that, I think it would be nice to give our listeners uh, an, an example of what a good, solid PACU handoff would be. So let's say that I'm the PACU nurse and Joe is the anesthesia resident, and he's giving me handoff on this lady, 45, let's say it's a 45-year-old lady getting a lap coli. Awesome. Um, so just like Derek said, you know, I personally, I still do this. I basically read over the nurse's shoulder onto their, their little handoff sheet because I really want to make sure I don't miss anything that, that matters to them. Um, so, so let's take this lady. She's a 45 year old lady. She got a lap coli. She has a history of high blood pressure, hyperlipidemia, and, um, nausea and vomiting, um, preceding the anesthetic. Um, so those are the kinds of, uh, medical history things I'm keeping in mind. Um, so I come up to Derek, we just dropped the patient off and hooked her up to monitors. 
first and foremost, her vitals all look stable, so I'm happy with that. Excellent. So Derek's got his nice sheet, and um, I'm just reading off the top. So the first thing we did, we did this under a general anesthetic. Um, she was in easy airway, no issues. We did a direct laryngoscopy um, and had no problems. Um, in terms of narcotics, she got 250 mics of fentanyl. She got a gram of, of IV Tylenol in the case, um, and that's it for narcotics. Um, for PO and V prophylaxis, we gave her Zofran, 4 milligrams, dexamethasone, 4 milligrams, and then we also ran a propofol infusion in the OR at about 30 mics per kilo per minute. Great. Um, for antibiotics, she got cefazolin. Um, for IV fluids, she got 1.5 liters of crystalloid. Um, she had a fully placed and had about 400 cc's of urine output. And the EBL was minimal, probably about 50 cc's. Um, for access, she's got an 18 gauge in her right AC, and she's got a 20 gauge in her left hand. And both of the IVs worked really well during awesome. the surgery. Um, one other thing to know about her is her, her baseline blood pressure usually runs about 140 over 80. So I'm not really going to worry about it. You know, right now it looks like it's close to baseline. Okay. Thank you, doctor. Yeah. You're uh, welcome, if, Derek. Yeah. If I, <laughs> if I was the PACU nurse getting that handoff, I would feel really relieved because I think what the first thing that I would notice probably would be the patient's blood pressure is like 140, 150s systolic. And then I would, my first question would probably be, what do you want to do with that? Mm -hmm. And in Joe's excellent handoff, I already got <laughs> that she baseline kind of runs in that range and that there's really nothing to do about that as long as she's asymptomatic. So I would feel a lot better about that, assuming everything else was okay. Yeah, totally. And I think it's nice, you know, when you're able to piece all of that information together, I think it just helps Derek, you know, be able to be confident that as he's taking care of this patient, as she wakes up, that, you know, what he can expect and, and what he can be sort of ready for in her post-operative course. Um, she may wake up and, and need a little bit more narcotic because I didn't give her any long-acting narcotic in the operating room. These are the kinds of things that um, help Derek out when he's recovering her afterwards. Yeah, and I think what's nice to think about this example is that you can also extrapolate this into handing off to another resident who may be taking over this case for you. I think that would be a great example of a pretty thorough handoff yeah. because you kind of went through all the important events. You talked about the patient's past medical history. So even if I was a resident who was coming in or another anesthesia provider who was coming in to relieve you for the case, I would feel a lot better with that handoff, knowing exactly what I was getting myself into. Well, thanks, Derek. Yeah. So I think with that in mind, it might be nice for us to um, kind of transition to talking about handing off to another provider in the operating room um, and to kind of give an example of, of what a bad handoff would be. <laughs> and we can kind of tease apart what, what more you would want to know if you were the relieving provider coming in to take over this case. So we'll, we'll do the same case, the 45-year-old lady with a lap coli um, with the same history, and I'm, I'm now going to be the relieving resident. So I'm coming in to take over for Derek, and we're somewhere in the middle of the case. Okay. 
hey, Joe, I'm so glad you're here. I have like a tea time to make in about 30 <laughs> minutes. And like the schedule is just so unpredictable. I had no idea if they're going to send relief or not. So thanks for thanks for coming, bro. Oh, you got it, dude. Yeah, so it was like a 45-year-old lady, you know, kind of bigger side. Like, airway wasn't the most straightforward, but we got the tube in. Um, she's getting like a lap coli, pretty standard. I haven't done anything too crazy. She's got an IV here. It's, you know, like we were able to induce with it, but it's just, I mean, I haven't really tried using it at all because she's been on gas. Um, it hasn't really been dripping, but like, I think you'll be fine. Um, that's, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's just a standard lap coli, you know, nothing too crazy um you good <laughs> all right thanks see ya. Derek <laughs> yeah see ya so okay after that example like how how good do you feel about taking over care for this patient and let's let's talk about uh what was bad about that handoff and okay. this is you know unfortunately you you probably will get a handoff very similar to this at some point in your career most definitely <laughs> yeah i think even at this point probably for all of our ca1s out there you know you may have taken over a patient like this or will soon and get a handoff similar to this so it's good to to have this in mind and and kind of think about well okay if this were me taking over the patient what what information would i like to know um so luckily, you know, Derek did tell me what the surgery was. <laughs> so we started off on the right foot there. Uh, but oftentimes, you know, when I'm giving a handoff for a simpler case like this um, in the operating room, um, I like to mention sort of where we're at in the surgical procedure as a starting point. So you can say, oh, well, this is a 45-year-old lady who's getting a laparoscopic cholecystectomy. We just got underway. We haven't even insufflated the abdomen. It's yeah. a nice way to set up your uh, relieving resident to to sort of know what they can expect. Um, from there, I think it's better. It's nice to give a, a precise example of her airway. So, Derek, <laughs> Derek's nice. Uh, you know, we got the tube in. Uh, you know, is reassuring that I guess you're <laughs> ventilating her, but <laughs> but uh, less reassuring if uh, if the tube comes out because now I don't really know what I'm working with. Um, so what I like to say in the OR is, okay, we did a DL, we got a grade one view with the MAC-3, and we have a 7.0 tube taped at 22. That's a nice way so your, your relieving person is sort of set up for success. Um, and then uh, you mentioned the IV access. One, I'm really worried about this IV. <laughs> <laughs> it's not dripping. They barely induced through it, and it's my only access, and we're under the drapes. So this is not an ideal position to be put in. Um, but, uh, but you definitely want to make sure, one, when if you're the provider handing off a case, that you're confident in the access that you have. Um, and two, if you're the provider um, taking over the case, it's good to know you know, where are your IVs, where are they located, which ones are working well, which ones aren't, and what is the use for, for each of these IVs. Um, I'll, I'll often like to add, if, I'm, if I have the patient on any infusions, I like to say, okay, well, my infusions are going through the 20 mm -hmm. in the AC on the left side, yeah. um, and I'm using the bolus um, line uh, for the 18 gauge in her right hand or something like that. So it just gives the relieving provider a sense of how you've been running the anesthetic so far. Um, 
Yeah, those are the big things, I think. Yeah, I, I, I really like your point about describing where you are in the procedure because yeah. based on where they are in the procedure, it could totally change the anesthetic requirements for the patient, right? Exactly. So I, I do like to say sometimes if we're in a period of time where there's going to be more stimulation that I anticipate, sometimes I will tell the person that is relieving me, oh, this was my plan. I have some narcotic drawn up. I have this drawn up and ready to go. This is what I was going to do when the patient got to this point. And if it is a more complicated procedure, kind of explain what they may anticipate seeing in the future. Like the pa the uh, surgeon wants the blood pressure at this level. This mm -hmm. part might be a little stimulating. Kind of setting them up for success by knowing what to anticipate. So I do uh, really like the idea of letting the person know where you are in the procedure because it really can change how active you anticipate on being. Yeah. And again, yeah, with the IV, I think we've all walked into cases where we finally try and use the IV and everything is completely blocked off and the arms are tucked and you just really have nothing. <laughs> it's not ideal. So yeah. I completely agree. Like um, if, if you want to make sure you're setting up the next person for success, you want to make sure that you have working access mm. and make sure you troubleshoot. And if there's anything problematic, let the person taking over for you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, if time allows, and of course sometimes it doesn't, if the IV for some reason doesn't work, just taking the chance to put something mm -hmm. uh, put something else in that would work. And hopefully, we're hoping for this case, with this kind of sketchy IV, that the arms are out and we can easily access the <laughs> upper extremities to place another IV for something that uh, may, not, may or may not be working mm -hmm. anymore. I think along those lines too, Derek, you bring up a good point. One, one other thing I like to mention often when I'm handing off is if I've had to use push doses of medications, really of any kind, it's nice to tell the, the provider taking over for you what to expect. Like, for example, if you're using push dose pressors, it's nice to be able to say, hey, she responds really well to 50 mics of phenylephrine. Um, I had... a in experience as a CA1 where I was in a long spine case. <laughs> and so I really got to know the patient and, and their responsiveness to different medicines. Um, and the relieving resident came in and took over for me. And in the middle of handoff, her blood pressure dipped a little bit. And they went and pushed four times the amount of pressure <laughs> oh, I no. would have been pushing. And of course, her map like doubled. So my recommendation is make sure that you include that in your intraoperative handoff. Hey, these are the things you can expect. When you give this amount of medication, this is how they respond. Um, it's just nice to set up your your relieving provider for success. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. Yeah, I was in a couple neuro cases last night um, with Dr. Steinberg, and yeah. he does uh, want very strict blood pressure control during specific portions of the case, which is completely understandable. Um, so it is nice if you, you've been in there for a while, you know exactly how the patient's going to respond to certain uh, doses of pressor, like you said, and every patient is a little different. And so it's, especially for cases like that, where you may be handing off, it's great to give them an idea of how they respond to these pressors. This way, when he requests a certain blood pressure target for when they're clipping the aneurysm or doing something else that's similarly sensitive, that you don't overshoot your target and send the patient into some sort of hypertensive crisis <laughs> by kind of freaking out. Yeah. And also in that line, you also made a point earlier about knowing where the infusion is attached. I think that's also such an important to, uh, point to hand off to 
Um, oftentimes, the infusions are not attached to the most distal portion for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes you'll have the infusions attached a little more proximally um, mm -hmm. to the fluid bag rather than the patient. Um, and then, so you may, uh, bolus something through that line and then all of a sudden all of your infusions that were sitting in that long tubing all of a sudden get pushed into the patient. So it is really nice to be able to include that in the handoff too. Yeah, definitely. So I, I think next we're going to talk more about how to hand off more complicated patients. So patients that are more like ASA class three, four, five emergency cases, um, people with extensive comorbidities or people that either came from the ICU, have a high chance of going to the ICU after the case, or are definitely going to the ICU after the case. So we'll talk about that in a little bit here. You're listening to Anesthesia Stat with Derek Wu and Joe Hodap. And we're back. Woo. Let's talk a little bit more about uh, how we hand off patients we're a little more complicated, just like I said, maybe ASA class three to four to five, maybe more emergent cases. These are patients that are either going more complicated surgeries that are going to require ICU level care or very sick patients at baseline who are undergoing surgery. So there is a, almost a completely different format in terms of how I would consider handing off this patient to, again, someone else who's either taking over the case or someone that I'm handing off to potentially in the ICU. So the interesting thing about this is that it's very similar to how you would present that patient in the ICU if you're on your ICU rotation you were rounding. We like to do a systems-based approach when we present on rounds as well as when we're writing the note as well. So we talk about all the same kind of systems. Um, so a lot of the same stuff applies. Usually when you do hand off in the ICU, the surgical team or someone who's a representative of the surgical team is going to be there to talk about the surgery, some of the past medical history, and some of the surgical concerns. And then from the anesthesia perspective, you can kind of start going into your systems-based. And here are usually the systems that uh, we talk about, which include neuro, CV, PULM, FENGI, renal, HEMID, endo and at the very end just talking about the access that the patient has and some of the things that we discuss in these systems are going to be different from things that you discuss when you're on your ICU rotation and presenting this patient also from a systems-based perspective as well so joe maybe you can start us off by talking about what would be relevant in some of these uh, systems that we would talk about awesome yeah so for me, I think this is a really valuable way to uh, create a structure uh, to think through your patients, especially the really complicated ones. And I'll use this structure when I'm handing off a sick patient in the operating room or in the ICU, as Derek said. I kind of use this as a visualization so that I make sure I'm not forgetting any of the really important things that I want to hand off. So I usually think of the systems head to toe. So starting with neuro, um, I include in neuro both the type of anesthetic that we did um, along with any types of narcotics or pain medications the patient received. Um, if they are having ongoing sedation um, because they remain intubated, then I'll, I'll mention that in this section as well. Uh, and I also like to comment on their baseline neurologic status at this point. 
So if I were handing off a patient in the ICU, I would say, well, at baseline, their ANO times three, their motor and sensory exams are totally normal. Um, we're running him on a propofol uh, sedation right now because he remains intubated, something to that effect, um, along with commenting on all the narcotics that the patient received. The second system is cardiovascular. So it's nice to mention here any of the patient's medical history that's pertinent. So if they have high blood pressure, if they ex have pre-existing heart failure or coronary artery disease, um, if they have reduced cardiac function for any reason, um, these are the nice uh, things to mention at this point. Um, and I, to be honest, I usually use this segment to also mention the types of access I have, but everyone has a, a little different variation on their own style. So um, to, to sort of stick with our current structure, it's good to mention if the patient's on any vasoactives of any type or any inotropes and how they were responding uh, in the operating room. Um, from a palm perspective, I talk about the airway. I talk about the medical history that they might have, like respiratory disease of any kind. And then I also mention, for the sake of the respiratory therapist or um, the ICU physician, how they were behaving under anesthesia with the ventilator. So for example, if a patient has a history of COPD um, and you notice that they had a pretty obstructive pattern. Uh, on their ventilatory waveforms uh, in the OR, it's nice to, to point that out. Um, then you can talk about FENGI. And really, this is kind of a, a slightly more minor topic from the anesthesia side of things, um, because most of our patients are, are NPO, but you can comment on if you have enteral access of any kind. Um, you can comment on if you were trending electrolytes in the operating room for any reason. Um, like following sodiums for a, a patient who had neurosurgery or something like that. Um, but honestly, most of the time, this is, a, I think, an under-the-radar topic for me. Yeah, I would totally agree with that. I mean, the only thing I would uh, add to that is just in case we have to administer crystalloid or colloid, I'll include how much we administered. Sometimes if I do give some sort of PONV prophylaxis, because there are oftentimes we'll have patients where we think we're going to extubate at the end and it'll be important to have their post-op nausea and vomiting under control, but for some reason or other, we aren't able to extubate. So sometimes I'll mention, oh, I gave this much of Decadron, this much of Zofran as well. Mm. Um, but I agree, it's definitely not as active as a system as you may consider uh, in the ICU where nutrition is of utmost importance and whereas in surgery, they're almost definitely always MPO unless we're concurrently running some sort of IVTPN or something along mm -hmm. those lines. And then after that, I usually do mention the renal system. It's not that much from the renal perspective, to be honest. Sometimes if the patient is already ESRD and on dialysis, I'll hand off when the patient last got dialysis, how severe the ESRD is, if they still make urine or not. Um, and then if there is any urine output, how much the urine output was, am I concerned? Has it been trending downwards? Has it been trending upwards? Is it pretty stable? Um, but that's essentially what I'll mention in the renal section. In heme ID, uh, this is where I always mention my blood product transfusions. Sometimes it's nothing, sometimes it's extraordinary amounts of blood, 
but it's always nice to give the receiving team or the person that you're handing off to um, how much blood products that you gave, whether that be uh, like RBCs, FFP, platelets, cryo, or if you gave something uh, a little more uh, concentrated or reconstituted factors like FIBA or Reostap, anything like that, it's important for them to know. Occasionally, if you bring up a patient that is at risk of continual bleeding, maybe they had a high-risk surgery or they have some sort of coagulopathy, oftentimes we'll bring up some blood products as well with the patient. And so that's this is the section in which I would bring up how many blood products are available at bedside as well. Um, and then here, if I can remember, I'll usually write down what my most recent crit um, and values are and kind of trend them. Say they're trending down, they're trending up. This is the crit that we left the room with. This is the crit that we had before we gave blood product, just so they know where they stand if they're concerned that they may need to transfuse mm -hmm. or not. And then for the ID portion, I'll just talk about uh, what kinds of antibiotics that we gave in the operating room. For endo, this is pretty variable among people. I think with people who are diabetics, I'll talk about the glucose levels that they maintained over the course of the case. Um, and then occasionally if we did give some sort of steroid dose, oftentimes for transplants or for things of that nature, I'll talk about giving the immunosuppressant medications during uh, that portion as well. And then like Joe said, sometimes people do mention the access during CV, sometimes at the end, but this is a good idea to kind of just to go over your lines, just like your lines, just like you would with PACU handoff. Tell them what works, what didn't, what's new, what did you have to remove? things like that. Nice. Yeah, but uh, especially towards the beginning of CA one year, I wouldn't expect to do too many ICU transports. And of course, the kinds of information that are relevant to each ICU transport is always going to be different based on what case you're doing. And especially based on what CV or not what CV, what ICU that you're transporting to, it could be the CV ICU, it could be the neuro ICU, it could be the SICU. So mm -hmm. All of those uh, providers and all those teams are going to have different concerns uh, based on what the patient is coming in with. Yeah, totally. I totally agree with that. And I would just say, you know, whatever, I think this is kind of a cool example of how like Derek's system is slightly different from my system, but largely speaking, the structure overall is very similar. Mm -hmm. And I think really the goal here is to have some type of structure in your mind that you can use to encapsulate all of the aspects of the patient's care so that you don't forget about those things when you're handing the patient off. Um, you know, like a great example of this is um, when you are going head to toe, you know, if, if there was that kind of slightly obscure medical history question or concern that you had um, that didn't really play a factor in the anesthetic case or the surgical case, but might really matter for their post-operative care, it's really nice to be able to mention that um, because you're going head to toe and you're, you're kind of conceptualizing each different organ system as you go. I completely agree. People have different ways of doing things and it's, it's nice to have different people on this podcast and kind of see what the similarities are and what the differences are. But as long as you have a consistent structure that you can trust, mm -hmm. it'll be very easy 
to uh, make sure that you don't miss anything that might be important. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So now we're at the section of the podcast that excites me very much. <laughs> I, I love to use this podcast not as a way just to um, put some information out there to our audience, but as a way to catch up with my fellow co-residents, especially since we're at the end of July. And it's been quite some time since I saw Joe, since yesterday when we were on call together. <laughs> so Joe, what has been, what are you into these days? Like, what are you excited by? What's going on in your life? Yeah. Um, I think the big the big thing for me right now, as Derek mentioned, uh, you know, we've been doing a lot of sort of chief resident work recently. And yes. I'm just really excited to see how far the CA1s have been coming, you know, in the last few weeks. And I'm going to avoid getting overly sappy here on the podcast, but <laughs> it's just been really fun. You know, I, I've been really impressed with everyone and I think the CA1s have been really great and have really kind of taken the bull by the horns and are, um, you know, just getting ready to rock and roll here in just a couple of days. So I think that's been really fun to see. And, um, you know, I'm also excited, I think, um, on our end, you know, that we've, we're, we're sort of cresting the hill, <laughs> so to speak of, of, uh, you know, of the challenging work, but it, it really has been a fun time. Yeah, I completely agree. It's so gratifying to see someone who has gone through intern year and had the promise of finally getting training in the specialty they matched in finally get here and start doing the things that they originally signed up for. So it's really nice to see almost the practice of anesthesia from these such fresh eyes of people who are truly just so excited to be here, yeah. so excited to be doing anything. So shout out to you new CA1s, especially here starting at Stanford. Like it's mm -hmm. such, it's been such a pleasure getting to know you and it's, it's really exciting just to see you guys hard at work. Yeah, couldn't agree more. What, what about you, Derek? Oh, yeah. On a personal note, what I've been really excited about is the return of one of my favorite shows. Uh, the name is Better Call Saul. Nice. It's kind of a spinoff from the really popular Breaking Bad. It follows mm -hmm. Saul Goodman, and it's kind of like a prequel to the events that happened in Breaking Bad. And mm -hmm. there was a little bit of a hiatus because of the pandemic, but now we're finally in the final season, and it's some of the most powerful TV that I've seen. I mean, the cinematography, the acting. Um, the last episode that I saw, which is the second episode of the second half of the last season, I just had to sit by myself for 20 minutes thinking about the episode. I mean, it was such a wow. thrilling and powerful piece of television. So I've been, on a personal note, I've been very excited for the return of this show. Nice, nice. I'm going to have to check it out. I ha haven't actually watched it, but maybe that's what I'll do next yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's really I mean, you were telling me yeah. about a movie that you were watching on netflix oh, too right yeah, yeah yeah um just this morning actually while i was kind of recovering from my post-call stupor <laughs> i was watching uh the gray man it's with ryan gosling and uh chris evans captain america yes um and it's fun it's nice action you know it's just kind of a straightforward you know kind of action spy espionage kind of film so it's nice i just it's good to just sit down and watch some watch some good old television from time to time you know yeah that sounds awesome yeah joe and i were both on call at stanford yesterday until probably like around 1 1 or something morning, like that yeah. and we both actually uh incorporated some of the principles we're talking about today in transporting both of our patients up to the icu <laughs> exactly so yeah, I, that sounds like a perfect post-call activity, just something with a lot of action, something that's well-made. 
Exactly. Ryan Gosling is a very, uh, he's a very attractive man. He and is. he is a very good actor too. So I think that's something exactly. that I'll check out. Yeah. But yeah, to the rest of our audience, thank you so much for joining us yet again for another edition of Anesthesia Stat. It's been a pleasure getting to hear all the feedback about the podcast. And I'm, I'm really happy to be able to bring this to all of you. Um, and to all of our CA1s who are going to be starting independently on Monday, see you all in the ORs. See ya.